good to see you here this morning. Thankful for those of you that are joining us uh, online. It's great to be back on Easter. It was a lonely, lonely Easter last year, so I'm certainly glad to see all of you this morning. This morning, we're going to be looking into the final two chapters of the book of Revelation, the final two uh, chapters of the Word of God. That might seem like an odd text uh, for an Easter Sunday morning. Typically on Easter weekend, we commemorate what Christ has done, his death on the cross, his burial in the tomb, his uh, resurrection on that Easter Sunday morning, which confirmed his power over sin and death and the grave. But this morning, as we celebrate the life that he gives, we're going to look at what the Bible says eternity is going to be like for those who place their faith and their trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. What's going to look like uh, when time on earth is up, and what is eternity going to be like when human history ends? You know, before we look at the last two chapters in God's Word, we need to go back to the first two, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read that God created a perfect world. He created man and woman and placed them in that perfect world and gave them dominion over it. They were to oversee it, to enjoy it. And in addition to having a perfect world to live in, they had a perfect relationship with God. His presence was with them continually. He was always available to them. And that didn't last long, did it? You move simply from Genesis 1 and 2 to Genesis chapter 3, and you find out that man sinned, man rebelled against God. The perfect world that God created began to deteriorate, as did their human bodies. But worst of all, in that brokenness that happened after man's sin is the relationship between God and man was broken. God and man were separated uh, because of man's sin. And you still see that brokenness today. You see the brokenness in cultures. You see it in government. You see it in nature. You see it in man. Man was made for God. And apart from relation with God, life will never be for man what God intended for it to be. There, there's brokenness there. And Jesus came to bring restoration. He came to bring restoration to man's relationship with God. He came to bring new life in man's soul and spirit. And it's Jesus' death and burial, but most importantly, his resurrection that gives man new life spiritually and one day physically. That's why Paul wrote those words, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are made new. Now, although we who are in Christ have been given new life, we still are uh, living in this fallen, decaying world for now. But the time is coming when all things are going to be made new. And that's what we're going to see this morning in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. By the way, if you haven't been uh, in church in a while or, or if you're just visiting with family this morning, let me mention that we have been, uh, this is our 12th week in a series on the book of Revelation. The last 11 weeks, we have walked through what's going to happen at the end. Revelation, the word means unveiling. And John was given um, this, this message, this vision from God to unveil what's going to take place at the end of human history. Now, clearly this morning, I can't take the time it would, it, it would take to cover the last 11 weeks. But let me give you just a broad overview to bring you up to speed 
to where we are at the end of Revelation today. In, in chapters 4 through uh, 20, through last week, John details what's going to happen in the last seven years of human history. That last seven years actually has a name for that period of time. It's called the tribulation because that period of time is going to be filled with many tribulations for those who are alive on earth. We don't know when that period of time will begin, but the Bible is very clear on the events that will happen during that period of time. Now, God, in his grace and mercy, has promised eternal life to those who place their faith in Christ. But God, in his justice, has decreed that those who reject Christ for salvation will spend eternity in a very real place called hell in literal torment. So what we looked at the last several weeks in this tribulation period was both the time of warning as well as a time of wrath. God is going to destroy the earth and everyone on the earth who refuse to obey him. And that destruction is going to come over that period of seven years. Some of the destruction comes through natural calamities, which are controlled by God. Some of it comes through direct satanic attacks. Some of the disasters and tragedies that occur come directly from the hand of God. But with each tragedy, although each tragedy will end many lives, each tragedy also provides opportunity for people to repent and turn to God. That's his desire. That's, that's his heart. He doesn't want anyone to suffer death. He doesn't want anyone to suffer eternal punishment. He wants everyone to turn to him and come to salvation through faith in Christ. So that's what's happened in chapters 4 through 20. That brings us to chapters 20 and 21 this morning. The tribulation is over. All of mankind, everyone from, from the beginning of time who turned from God, rebelled against God, they're all now, they've been consigned to the lake of fire to suffer for all of eternity. Only those who have given uh, their lives to Christ are going to experience what's described here in these two chapters. And this is what Christ died to give us. This is the eternal life he promised. Now, let me say again. Um, what, what we see in Revelation is only possible because of the resurrection of Christ. Everything that we're going to see and, and read and hear and understand about eternity is only possible because of Jesus' resurrection. And I want to tell you this morning, Jesus' resurrection is, is historically verifiable. Not just in Scripture, it is historically verifiable that it, it happened. And because Jesus was resurrected, just as he said, we can trust his promises. Every one of them. If he could keep that promise, he could keep every promise. And we know that he can truly give us eternal life. And we, like Christ, he was the first fruits of those who would be resurrected. We, like Christ, can be resurrected and have eternal life. Now, you need your Bible open. As we move through very quickly to follow along, need your Bible open. You know, I recognize, let me pause and say this, I recognize there are some who are listening either here in this room, in the venue upstairs, or even online. There's some who are listening that perhaps haven't committed themselves to Christ. Maybe they don't even, they're, they're not sure that the Bible is, is true and accurate. Maybe um, you're kind of a skeptic. I want to make a suggestion to you very quickly this morning, and that is, um, all of the Revelation messages that we've covered the last 11 weeks are online on our website. They're only about 35 minutes each. would not take you that long to, uh, to go through them. I want to suggest, 
um, that you get a Bible. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we have copies available today. Let me say to our members, if you have a friend, uh, neighbor, family member doesn't has a bi- have a Bible, get them a copy. I want to suggest if you're kind of a skeptic, you're not sure about the Bible, you're not sure about Christ, I'm going to suggest that you go online and you listen to those messages. And here's why. If the end comes in your lifetime, we don't know when that last seven years is going to be initiated, but if the end comes in your lifetime and you have, you have listened and, and you have heard the events that are going to happen in Revelation, as you see those things begin to unfold right before your eyes, you're going to come to the realization that God's word is true. And you may have opportunity. Those disasters that occur in the tribulation are going to kill a lot of people. You may have opportunity when you see the book of Revelation begin to come true. You may have opportunity still to confess Christ as Lord. So if you're a skeptic, I want to challenge you to consider that. All right, let's jump in. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Immediately we see that things are going to be very different in eternity. God has promised to make all things new. Verse 1, there's a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and first earth have passed away. The God who created them is going to destroy them and recreate a new heaven, a new earth. Look in verse 1. This is interesting. The sea was no more. There's no more sea. Uh, we're, we're not told why, but you know what? We do know it won't be necessary in the new earth. You know why the sea exists? You know 70% of the surface of the earth is covered by oceans. Why did God do that? Why did God create the world in such a way that 70% of the earth was covered by the ocean? Well, did you know that the sea is what cleanses the earth and makes life on earth possible? The sea is 96% water, 3.5% salt, a perfect balance, and a few trace constituents. Here's what the sea does. Our, our waste, um, our, our product uh, of waste and, and pollution end up in the soil, get washed into the streams and the rivers, end up in the sea. The sea, because of its salinity, the sea is a perfect antiseptic, and it breaks down all those pollutants. And as the water heats the sea, pure water vapor rises from the sea and forms into clouds and brings us rain and refreshment and cleansing. Did you know that? Listen, the next time you're in a, in a discussion with someone about evolution, there's another great example of intelligent design. The creator God made the sea, and the reason the sea is 70% of our earth is because that's what it would take to preserve life on this earth. Well, there's not going to be need for a sea in, in the new heaven and the new earth, verse 2. There's a new holy city, a new Jerusalem. That's going to be the capital of the new earth. Look at verse 3. This is the most important feature of the new heaven and the new earth. He, God, will dwell with them who are them, redeem mankind, those who put their faith in Christ and are going to be in eternity with him. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's what we were made for. That's why God created us, to be our God and for us to be his people, to have a relationship with him. Nothing else is going to satisfy. And you see that in the emptiness people in our world struggle with today. They, they look for all these things. They look for fulfillment in relationship or career or, or pleasures or, or, or other pursuits, looking for a purpose and fulfillment which continually evades them. They never find it. 
Listen, we were made for a relationship with God. Our soul was formed in such a way that nothing else can fill us. The French philosopher Pascal said it this way, in every man there is a God-shaped void. You can't fill a God-shaped void with anything but God. And yet people look to find fulfillment in their lives for all, in all these other ways, when only God brings fulfillment. You know what the greatest blessing in heaven is going to be? It's, it's not going to be, it's not going to be all the beauty that we're about to describe. The greatest blessing in heaven is going to be the presence of God. Listen, the greatest tragedy in hell is not going to be the physical pain and torment and suffering. The greatest tragedy in hell is going to be the absence of the presence of God. We were made for him. Verse 4, you see one of the greatest promises in scripture. You often hear this quoted at, at funerals. He will wipe away every tear. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no crying, no pain. Dorothy's going to get to heaven and say, we're not in the land of dying anymore, Toto. No, we're in heaven. We're in the land. I don't know that Dorothy's going to heaven. Don't quote me on that. We're in the land of the living. Verse 5, God's making all things new. That seems too good to be true. So look what he tells John. These words are trustworthy and true. And then he validates why he can say they're trustworthy and true. In verse 6, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. What's he saying? God's saying, remember, I, I, I've always existed. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning and the end, everything in between. I'm in control. That's something we've seen over and over and over again in our study of Revelation, the end times. God is in control of everything all the time. Look what he says in verse 6. It is done. Now that reminds me, I don't know if this came to your mind, that reminds me of Jesus' words on the cross when he said, it is finished. The last words that he spoke, he was declaring that the sacrifice was complete, the foundation for our salvation had been laid, it was finished. Now God says, it is done. What is he saying? Our redemption is complete. Those in Christ have now been brought home to the new heaven. To their eternal home. And God's plan has been accomplished. Well, who gets to go to heaven? Verse 6 says it's the one who's thirsty. What does it mean to be thirsty? It means you recognize that nothing on earth satisfies. Not fame, not wealth, not pleasure, not possessions. The only thing that satisfies your soul is your relationship with God. It's God himself that quenches your thirst. Nothing else. Verse 6 those who are thirsty, those who thirst for him will drink from the spring of the water of life. Look, without payment. You see, there's no payment man can make. There's some of you that even though you've heard the gospel message, you're still holding out for the fact that you can pay for, you can earn your salvation, you can be good enough, you can go to church enough, you can read your Bible, you can even pray, and you can earn your salvation. No, he says there is no payment. There's nothing adequate you can do. It's simply the gift of God to those who seek him. That's who gets to drink from the river of life. Look down at verse 8. He goes ahead and tells us those who will not be drinking from the spring or from the river of life, those who will not be in heaven. And there are three categories of people here. The first is the cowardly, 
who are the cowardly. They're those who are ashamed to confess Jesus as Lord. They're worried they might be unpopular. They're worried that they might be in the, or they're unwilling to be in the minority. They're, they're afraid of the risk of following Christ, and they turn their backs on him. And can I tell you, we're going to see more and more cowardly people in the days ahead in our culture. Second group, the unbelieving. Well, who are the unbelieving? Well, they're, they're probably good people. They have a hard time believing that sinners will go to hell. They, they say, well, no, God is a loving God. God wouldn't, God wouldn't send people to hell. God wouldn't send sinners to hell. Or they're, they're unbelieving um, about their own need for Christ. They think they're a pretty good person. They don't, they don't need Christ. They're good enough. They can, they can earn their way in. The bottom line for the unbelieving is they don't want God to invade their life and to take over their self-centered life. They don't want a Lord. They want to be their own God and their own Lord. Well, not only are the cowardly and the unbelieving not getting in, but look thirdly at the third group, and this is no surprise, the vile. Who are the vile? The vile are people who have allowed sin to completely take over their lives. They, they love their sin. They, they love darkness more than light. They feed their mind with vile things. They practice a vile lifestyle. They see no need to change, and they have no desire to change. So we're reminded that those who will not drink from the spring, the river of life, are the cowardly, the unbelieving, and the vile. None of these groups are going to be anywhere near the new heaven and the new earth. They're assigned to the lake of fire, and they're going to suffer eternal punishment. Now, the balance of chapter 21, verses 9 through 27, describe the new Jerusalem. Before we look at the description, let me remind you, let me remind us that John is trying to describe indescribable things with finite human language. It's impossible. We, we can't begin to imagine what the city is going to look like. Now, we have a hint of how captivating it's going to be. If you look back up in verse 2, he says that the new city comes down out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I was at a wedding yesterday. You know, the groom and the groomsman and pastor, they all come in and they're standing on the platform. Boy, they're looking sharp and they know they're looking sharp. But you know what? When that door opens in the back and the bride comes down that aisle, ain't nobody looking at them guys. Right? All eyes are on the bride, and all the whispers in the room are about the beauty of the bride. That's what it's going to be like for us when the, when the new city comes down. We see, he says here, that the city is radiant like a rare jewel. It has a high wall with 12 gates named for the 12 tribes of Israel. Listen to me. We owe a great debt. We Gentiles owe a great debt to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people, because the gospel salvation came from the Jews. And we need to remember as a nation that we owe a debt and we need to bless those people. And as long as a, na as a nation, as we bless those people, God will bless us. When we stop blessing them, when we turn from them, God will curse us. Pray for Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the nation of Israel. As we bless them, God blesses us. The 12 foundations he mentions next were named for the 12 apostles. Why? Because they gave us truth. They gave us the practices we have in the New Testament. Look at verse 15. 
the angel with John is going to measure the city. When God measures, it's a sign of ownership. He's going to measure the city. And you see in these measurements, you see either the number 12 or, or multiples of 12. And that is because the number 12 in Scripture symbolizes government. You remember that Isaiah said of Jesus, the government will be on his shoulders. This city represents perfect divine rule. This is perfect government like we have never seen before. Look at verse 16. Look how vast the city is. 12,000 stadia is between 1,400 and 1,500 miles. We'll we'll lowball it and go with 1,400. So the city is 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles high. Now, that's kind of hard to wrap our minds around, so let me, let me help us a little bit. 1,400 wide and 1,400 long would be from Canada to Mexico and from St. Louis to Los Angeles. That's about 2 million square miles. Now, is that going to be enough room for everyone? I wonder how big a mansion in heaven is going to be exactly. Remember, the city's also 1,400 miles high. Let's suppose that this eternal city, being 1,400 miles high, has, has stories like a big building. I don't know about you. I'm thinking of my mansion. I want maybe 20-foot high ceilings. <laughs> In this city that's 1,400 miles high with 20-foot high ceilings, you could fit over 369,600 stories in the city. Currently, there are 2.3 billion people in the world who claim to be Christians. Now, claim. I've told you many times, not everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ is a follower of Christ. But let's just round that. Let's say there are going to be 2 billion people in heaven. If there are 2 billion people in this city that's 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, and 1,400 miles high, each individual person would have for themselves 362 square miles. That big enough for your mansion? And that's just the new city. That's not the full expanse of the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 18 through 20, look at all the precious stones and jewels used in the construction of the city. Jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysoprase, jacinth, amethyst. And of course, as you've always heard from your childhood, the walls and the streets of the city are made of what? Gold. Not a gold like we've ever seen. A gold that is so pure that it is transparent. Listen, reading the words here isn't even accurate. The, the description's incomprehensible. We can't imagine what this city's going to be like. Verse 21, the 12 gates. Each of the 12 gates is made from a single pearl. Now, I, I, growing up, living in Florida, did a lot of scuba diving. I saw a lot of pretty frightening things. Once ran into an eight-foot hammerhead shark in 60 feet of water. But I'm going to tell you, I sure would not run into one of these pearls, or one of these oysters that made this pearl. A single pearl to make the gate. Well, let me tell you about the the significance of the pearl. You know that a pearl is formed when when a grain of sand or an irritation gets inside an oyster, and the irritation or the discomfort causes it to begin making that material surrounding that that irritation. Matthew 13, Jesus told the story of the uh, pearl merchant, 
And this merchant of pearls would travel looking for the next great pearl. And he found one that was so beautiful and so fantastic that it says he sold everything he had in order to get that pearl. Jesus is the merchant in that story. Jesus gave up everything in order to redeem a pearl of great price. You. You. Paul in Philippians 2 said, although he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself. Took the form of a bondservant. Being made in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave up his prerogatives as God. He gave up his right to be worshipped. He even gave up his very life to redeem us. And the pearl, those pearl gates are always going to remind us of his suffering. The suffering he went through to make something beautiful out of the life that you and I had wrecked. And the suffering he went through to bring us to a place of indescribable beauty. Verse 22. There is no temple in the city. You know, in the Old Testament, people had to go to the temple to be in God's presence, to worship. God's presence wasn't with them everywhere. They had to go to the place of worship where God's presence was. But in this city, God's presence is going to be in the city. We will never, there will never be a moment that you're out of the presence of God in eternity. Verses 23 and 24, there's no need of the sun and moon. Now, there may be a sun and moon, but there's no need for it. Why? Because the presence of God lights the city. Verse 25, the gates will never be closed for there is no night. Why did cities close their gates? They closed their gates at at night for protection, to keep invaders out. There's no need for that in this city. The gates are always open. Verse 27, nothing unclean will enter. No one who is evil will live there in that city. The first six verses of chapter 22 are a continuation of this description of the New Jerusalem. But you see the emphasis shifts to not how the city is built, but the emphasis, emphasis shifts to the provisions of God that will bless those who follow him. Look at all these provisions. You have the river of life. You have eternal life. You, have, uh, you, you regain access to the tree of life. You remember that Adam and Eve lost access to the tree of life because had they taken from it after they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if they'd eaten from the tree of life, they would have lived forever in a fallen sinful state. But we're going to regain access to the tree of life. There's permanent health and vitality. You see the leaves are there for the health of the nations, not because there's going to be sickness that has to be healed, but it's that we're going to be healthy and have great vitality, physical and spiritual. Can I get an amen from the senior adults? The curse of sin that brought hardship to life is removed. You remember the curse of sin. Adam and Eve were told, Eve was told she would have great pain in childbearing. Adam was told that he would have to work and really toil, but the ground would produce thorns and thistles. Well, all the things have been cursed by sin. Our whole world is deteriorating because of the curse of sin. All of creation is groaning, waiting for redemption to come. The curse of sin is removed. There's no more curse of sin. We, look at this, we will see Jesus' face. We will always be in his presence. This is what we were made for. There's no more darkness, and we will reign forever with Christ. Verse 6, John must just be looking dumbfounded. 
Because again, the angel assures him, this is the second time, listen, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, this is true. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen in this way. Verse 7, Jesus is coming, and we are encouraged, all of mankind, since the time that John penned these words under the direction of the Holy Spirit, we have been encouraged to read and study these words because Jesus is coming coming and we want to be ready. Verse 11. Verse 11 could be confusing when you read it. It's, it's a warning. He says, let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. This is not an encouragement to keep on doing evil when he says, let the evildoers still do evil. If your parents ever say to you, my mom often said this to me, Keep it up, buddy, and we'll see what happens. You ever heard those words? They weren't saying, she wasn't suggesting that I continue to act up. It was a warning, okay? This is a warning. It's a warning to the evildoer, and it's encouragement to the righteous. You keep on doing what you're doing, but know this, verse 12, Jesus I am coming soon, bringing my recompense, my payment with me, to repay each one for what he has done. He's coming. And when he comes, he will pay us according to what we have done. Now, that's not just talking to unbelievers who are going to receive a horrible payment because they've rejected and rebelled against God. It's talking to believers as well. We will stand before the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, and be rewarded, not judged, you can't lose your salvation, but whether or not you're rewarded, the amount of reward you get where you rule and reign with him depends on how you live for him. I'm coming and I'm bringing my reward with me. Verse 14, those who wash their robes have the right to the tree of life and can enter the city. Your robes have to be washed. Every one of us, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, ever since Adam and Eve, were all contaminated by sin. And the funny thing is, a lot of us spend time wallowing in the mud while trying to wash our robes and get them clean. You can't do it. Only Jesus can wash our robes, can wash us off. We can't clean ourselves. And he says here, only those who've been cleansed can enter heaven. Look at verse 15. I won't, I won't read all that. Everyone else whose robes are not washed are going to be outside. Look down at verses 18 and 19, and I'll come back and close with 17 in just a minute here. Verses 18 and 19, God, or excuse me, John gives us this warning from God. He says, you need to be careful not to read your own thoughts into this book, not to change its meaning, not, not, not to minimize its warnings. Well, how do we do that? We read the book and we discount it. Well, God, God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't send people to hell. I, I'm not an evil person. God wouldn't send me to hell. I, I've done a lot of good things. All scripture is given by God and we are not to twist his words to our liking. What he has said is clear and this is exactly how it's going to happen and we better believe it. If we ignore it, if we reject it, if we distort it, we're going to suffer and miss out on God's plan. Verse 17, let's close with this. 
the spirit and the bride, that's the church, that's believers. When Jesus says, I am coming, they respond, come. They're ready. They're ready to see him. They're ready to be in, the, in their new home, in the new Jerusalem, in new heaven, in new earth. They say, come. But look also in verse 17. There's also here an invitation for the one who as yet has no place in God's eternal kingdom in heaven. And, and it's an open invitation. Look what he says. Anyone who is thirsty may come. The water of life is offered freely with no price. Why is there no price? Because you can't pay for it. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good deeds. Only Jesus can pay. Jesus paid for our sin. He took the penalty of death on himself. And again, the resurrection confirmed his ability and his authority of conquering death. He alone can give life eternal. So you come. Think about what we've seen today, and this is just a tiny little bit, what we've seen today of, of eternity. The question this morning is, do, do you want that? Is that where you want to be? And if it is, he says, come. And the gospel of Christ is, is very simple. There, there are no restrictions on who can come. Anyone who is thirsty, anyone who wishes can come with just one condition. You have to receive the gospel. You have to receive salvation. You have to receive eternal life. You have to receive the water of life freely. You can't bring your own good works. You, you don't have enough merit. Easter is about new life. You recognize your need, you admit your thirst, you come to Christ. Let me mention this morning, before I go any further, if you're here this morning and you recognize that you're not a part of the kingdom of God, you don't have a home in heaven, you don't have a place in eternity, a place of life. That's what the church is here to help you with. We've got pastors on our church staff that would love to talk with you and help you find what it means to know Christ, to have a relationship with Christ, and to have eternal life. Now, we're in a, we're in a, a time and a season that it's difficult to uh, have a time at the end of the service we used to do where people would come forward and speak to a pastor. But let me throw this out. This sounds like a commercial. I'm sorry, but let me just throw this out. If you have a need, any need, a need to come to Christ, a need to reconnect with Christ, you just text the word RESPOND to 94000, and today you will hear from one of our pastors. They're not going to come by your house today unless you're having something really good for Easter dinner. <laughs> They're not going to show up. It's going to respond to you and say, hey, tell me a good time. You want to talk by phone? You want to talk by email? You want to meet face-to-face? -face? But listen, don't walk out of here. Maybe you just came to church today because it's Easter Sunday and that's the thing to do and you didn't expect to have this encounter with God. Don't walk out today and just dismiss that. Do something about it. Just text the word RESPOND, 94000, and one of our pastors will help you and walk with you and guide you through whatever your need is. Easter's about life.
It's about new life. There are people here in this room, there are people upstairs, there are people online that need new life. Don't dismiss the thought, don't dismiss the tug on your heart in this moment. Respond. Anyone who is thirsty may come.